Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 10th of January, year 2023 episode of the Greenwich at Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. The town was founded on July 18, 1640. Now, since its humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged to be one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. Like it or not, <laughs> you're, you're a part of our history, so I congratulate you, and I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Now, the Greenwich and Town for All Season show podcast is made possible by St. Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, my friends, we've got a great show for you, so let's get started. Coming up on today's show. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our journey will take us to Whitney Castle on Byram Shore. Thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich and its book, The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930. Originally built for Frederick C. Whitney and his family, the estate was acquired by Fred Hirshhorn in 1922. Quote, it would take the Hirshhorn family to bring the estate to life, quote unquote. And so indeed they did. On the judge's corner, Judge Frederick A. Hubbard penned depression and Christmas business at the post office, those round stones being found under Greenwich Avenue, why there is a bend in the avenue's upper end in January 1932. On Greenwich life as it is and was a century ago, you'll hear about the Connecticut legislature over the years and about important acts affecting the town of Greenwich in early 1923. I'll also share yet another New Year's story, this one from 1929 and set at the famed Pickwick Arms Hotel that used to exist at the top of Greenwich Avenue. In September 1903, the side wheel steamer S.E. Spring was wrecked on rocks 200 feet from Commodore E.C. Benedict's mansion at Indian Harbor. I'll have details. On crimes and misdemeanors, you'll hear about the shooting by a masked intruder of Mrs. Antoinette C. Morell, the daughter of E.C. Commerce of the United States Steel Corporation and owner of Conyers Farm in 1905. On a much lighter note, eccentric Milo Mead, the quote-unquote sage of New Lebanon, was fooled by picnickers of the Independent Citizens Association in 1904. This story was so amusing it was published as as a special to the New York Times. You'll learn how and why. My friends, there's lots to see, to do, and to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of this place that we call home, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We'll have all this and more as the history of Greenwich, Connecticut continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, 
Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound Looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American Diplomatic Corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-869. 8632, write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. My friends, it's that time to go back in Greenwich, Connecticut's history to the Gilded Age era. That's when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and landscapes, a time that the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as the flowering of Greenwich, an age when the word Greenwich first became synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, the Great Estate Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book was published. It is richly illustrated, revealing a wealth of detailed information, and it's a book that I strongly recommend. Now, on today's show, we are going to visit and learn about Whitney Castle. Its principal owners were Frederick C. Whitney and Fred Hirshhorn. The architect was W. Leanne Cottrell, and the construction date was 
1910 to 1913. So sit back and relax, and away we go. Frederick C. Whitney, who lived from 1865 to 1930, spent his life in the theater. As the son of a Detroit opera house owner, he would have had early exposure to the theatrical world, and he made his career as a producer, mostly of comic opera, in the United States and in Europe. His Whitney Opera Company introduced several successful plays, including Rob Roy and Quo Vadis. His most famous venture was the New York production of The Chocolate Soldier, adapted from George Bernard Shaw's Arms and the Man. With music by Oscar Strauss, the English version of this operetta was an instant hit and, proved, and time proved it to be an enduring one. This success apparently was a bonanza for Whitney, and it was, and it is not surprising that for months after the play opened in New York, he was planning a different sort of production in the form of a spectacular house on Byram Shore. On July 20, 1910, Fred and Sylvia Whitney purchased nearly four and a half acres from Edgar L. Marston, a partner in the banking house of Blair and Company, and on January 31st, he engaged architect W. Leant Cottrell to design the house. Cottrell's architectural record in includes residence in hotels, but his greatest fame was as the designer of mausoleums and monuments such as the Pennsylvania Monument at Gettysburg and the Wisconsin Monument at Vicksburg Battlefield, Mississippi. His proposal for Whitney's country house would certainly be called monumental. Some would say that it was an exact replica of Blarney Castle in Ireland or of Warwick Castle in England. Later, others would insist that it was a Scottish keep, moved stone by stone from its original site. The fanciful house and its fascinating owner spawned many local rumors. In fact, it was probably constructed by George Mertzen's sons of Byron Bluestone, a granite which would have been floated on scows from one of the nearby quarries. It was expensively outfitted with fine-quality hardware and woodwork from foundries and mills near and far. The dramatic result was a stone structure that rose from a rocky ledge overlooking Long Island Sound and held such wonders as a theater with stage. But this scenario was not to end as Whitney had planned. As construction proceeded, business problems plagued the owner, seeking additional Another theatrical coup, in 1911, Fred Whitney prepared to bring to New York the racy new comic opera Der Rosen Cavalier by Richard Strauss. He put $65,000 into costumes and sets for the production, but was unable to engage a theater. After coming from Europe and waiting for months to make their American debut, his two principal singers sued for breach of contract. Whitney was never able to realize his plan, and it took the Metropolitan Opera Company finally to bring the operetta to the United States in 1913. Apparently, construction on the Byram Shore House continued, but as Whitney's fortunes fluctuated, the payments to his contractors were often slow in coming. Nine years after construction began, liens on the property were held by the architect, the builder, several subcontractors, and a Chattanooga, Tennessee mining engineer. It is unclear when the house was completed, and according to neighbors, the only part that Whitney's ever occupied was the servants' quarters on the second floor. 
Some say that during one of his more prosperous periods, Frederick Whitney gave his wife Sylvia an expensive touring car for her birthday, but since she could not drive and they could not afford a chauffeur, it sat in the garage. Heavily mortgaged for years, the house was little more than a stage set under Whitney's ownership. It would take the Hirshhorn family to bring the estate to life, and in 1922, abandoning the idea of a country house, Whitney sold his castle to them. The Hirshhorns had been coming to Byram Shore for years. Fred Hirshhorn, who lived from 1870 to 1946, had been in the cigar manufacturing business since 1886 and had founded United Cigar Manufacturing Company, which later became the General Cigar Company. As a young bachelor, he had bought a large gray frame house called Shore House, two doors from where Whitney would build his home. Fred Hirshhorn settled himself into a comfortable habit of commuting to New York aboard the Evelyn, a 124-foot-long flush-deck steam yacht with a crew of 11. Each Monday morning, after a crew member had fetched the New York papers on his bicycle from the Porchester Railroad Station, the vessel would carry its passenger to the boat basin at 23rd Street in the city, where it would remain all week. From there, Hershorn could walk to his offices each day, returning to the Connecticut shore for the weekend, where the Evelyn Road at a mooring in front of the house. In 1912, Hirshhorn married Hannah de Rothschild Sharps, who lived from 1884 to 1974, of Newburgh, New York. And after their first child was born, he sold the Evelyn and settled into a more domestic routine of commuting from the summer place by train. While it was an idyllic setting for children's summer vacations, Byram Shore was rather isolated. Therefore, the Hirshhorns frequently invited friends from the city as house guests. Fred Hirshhorn Jr. recalls projects that were designed to keep the children busy and produce a sense of accomplishment. One year, he was allowed to build a pond of poured concrete and, with help from his mother, planted an herb garden around it. Another summer, he built a sailboat with the assistance of a local man named Rudolf Ludkinty who was later known as the proprietor of Rudy's Boat Rental in Byram. Like most of the other shorefront estates, the house was seldom used in winter, but it was kept heated by the houseman. The summer season began on Decoration Day, when the residence was opened and the family arrived. In August, the Hirshhorns went to the Adirondacks, returning to their shore house over for weekends and holidays until Thanksgiving. On Halloween, when the house was open to the community for a party, the Hirshhorn youngsters invited friends and many local children came. There was often a bonfire on the beach, and the house's great hall was used as each guest was expected to perform some stunt or skit. Though the Byram Shore area was within Greenwich, it had little relationship with the town. Until the 1940s, Byram was known as East Portchester, and going, quote, unquote, to the village meant Portchester. Downtown Greenwich was farther away, but an occasional trip to lunch at the Pickwick Arms, a hotel on Putnam and Greenwich Avenues, was a winter weekend alternative. During the summer, Saturdays on the shore were casual, a day when adults and children might visit informally for lunch or tea and an afternoon swim. 
Sunday luncheons were much more traditional and by invitation only. According to their son, Fred Hershorn Jr., Mrs. Hershorn was always concerned about fire in the gray shingled shore house. When their neighbor Whitney offered his house for sale, they purchased it for its fireproof qualities, combining the two pieces of property into an estate of, an estate of nearly 11 acres. The shore house was then torn down and the Hershorns moved into the stone mansion. The house was built on five levels of turrets and parapets, each crowned with crenellation, with many windows set deeply into the dense stone walls. Entering through a battlement-like porte-couture, visitors reached an imposing entrance hall with an enormous fireplace, which set the grand scale for the rest of the house. Although there was not an unusually large number of rooms, they were all massively sized. Floors were marble laid over concrete, and antique tapestries hung on the walls. The furniture was so large that when the Hirshhorns moved later, very few pieces could be fitted into houses of more conventional size. A dramatic curving staircase, enclosed in its own tower, led to the second floor, which held six bedrooms. The Hirshhorns made improvements to the property to accommodate their family. A, quote, trunk elevator, unquote, designed for transporting luggage and household goods, was eventually converted to a two-passenger elevator. Hannah Hirshhorn supervised the landscaping of gardens and became known for her beautiful roses, while her husband had boulders along the waterfront blasted and many loads of sand brought in to make a swimming beach along the 400 feet of shoreline. At the edge of the terrace, a semicircular pergola supported rambling lengths of wisteria. With a foundation of stone and a framework of copper-clad cedar, it overlooked the bathing beach below and housed in its lower level the gentleman's changing room. With the purchase of Hill House, a residence adjacent to their property, Hirshhorn provided suitable housing for the estate superintendent, Newcomb S. Mead, a nephew of Milo Mead, who was an early settler of Byram. Newcomb Mead worked for the Hirshhorn family for 54 years, and Fred Hirshhorn Jr. remembers him as a true, quote, New England farmer, unquote, very methodical in his habits, who would never even set his watch to daylight saving time in season. He was in charge of the grounds and buildings, which included a barn, chicken coops, and pigeon palaces, quote-unquote, he supervised vegetable gardens and fruit orchards. Fruits and vegetables canned from their produce were used in the family's New York apartment every winter. Milo Mead's wife, Maggie, served as the Hirshhorn's girl's nurse. Since she was English and very strict, the, the children delighted in referring to her, to her as, quote, Lady Mead, unquote. The large singled garage, shingled garage of the Hirshhorn's estate was built as a carriage house and stable in the 1890s and was bought by the Hirshhorns in 1910. In that era, it also housed the laundry and two apartments, one for the chauffeur and one for the resident painter. The building has two symmetrically gabled wings, and the center portion is topped by a distinctive cupola. Below it, the center gable is adorned by a bas-relief portrait of Milo Mead, which once graced the Danish clubhouse in Byram. 
It was placed there in the 1950s by the owner, a curious tribute to the man who once owned most of the land on Byram Shore. The Hirshhorn Mansion was always referred to as, quote-unquote, the castle by the neighbors in Byram. Although romantic and amusing appellations for summer homes were in vogue, the Hirshhorns never decided on one for their home, but it was a perennial subject of conversation. In 1927, Fred Hirshhorn Sr. moved from the presidency of General Cigar Company to its board chairmanship and retained his post until his retirement in 1940. He was an active supporter of the Federation of Jewish Philanthropies and a member of the Century Country and Harmony Clubs. When he passed away in 1946 at the age of 75, his children were young adults and his widow no longer had use for the large country property. In that period, when so many large estates seemed to have outlived their usefulness, it was difficult to find a buyer who wanted the property intact. Most of the holdings were bought by Samuel Friedenberg, a New York investor who divided his land into building lots. The Hirshhorn's neighbor, Rowena Teagle, bought the main house, which was close to her property line, and four acres to protect her privacy. She promptly had the house raised and resold the building lot, but the curtain did not fall easily on the legendary castle. The contractor who was hired to do the demolition is said to have remarked later that he lost money on the job. The house was so well built that his crew almost couldn't tear it down. Well, how about that? <laughs> well, my friends, let me tell you something. The Greatest States, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book, my apologies, by the Junior League of Greenwich is available for bar borrowing purposes through the Greenwich Library system. You can visit GreenwichLibrary.org. Now, if you would like to acquire a copy, my suggestion would be to visit the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store at GreenwichHistory.org. You can also call the Museum Store at 203-869-6899 or contact your favorite book vendor. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good, located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality, and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, Super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. 
The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman at the Greenwich Historical Society on October 19, 2022, and it would be closing on January 22, 2023. My friends, this long-awaited exhibition of artworks by American Impressionist painter John Henry Twachman, who lived from 1853 to 1902, presents a new view into the artist's life and home in Greenwich, where he lived with his family from 1890 to 1899. The exhibition, curated by art historian and Twachman scholar Lisa N. Peters, Ph.D., features artworks on loan from museum and private collections across the country, offering a unique glimpse into the artworks Twachman made, which depict his Greenwich home and his distinctive environs and the way the artist shaped the land to meet his artistic needs. My friends, to learn more about life and art, the Greenwich paintings of John Henry Twachman, please go online to GreenwichHistory.org. Well, my friends, Greenwich Before 2000 was published as an updated revised edition of another earlier Greenwich history book, Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Now, going through 1999, Greenwich Before 2000 was a project by the Greenwich Historical Society, and it was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds Jr., another descendant of the founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, and his numerous philanthropic bequests over the years have been done so much to advance the preservation of the town's history, and for that we are quite grateful. On today's podcast show, we are going to learn about what happened in Greenwich from the years 1880 to the, or through the years 1882, and it goes as follows. Nathaniel Witherell establishes, quote, unquote, The Fold, a home for children located at the Isaac Howe Mead Homestead on Indian Field Road. In January of 1880, several commissions have been appointed to settle the dispute between Connecticut and New York over the jurisdiction of the Captain's Islands. The latest group has decided in favor of Connecticut, which decision is ratified by the General Assembly. Now, in September 2nd of 1880, the Greenwich Water Company becomes operational, having been recently incorporated with a capital stock of $60,000 raised by the promoters. On September 28th of that year, the Metropolitan Telephone and Telegraph Company turns over the Greenwich Exchange to an affiliate company of American Bell. In 1883, the Southern New England Telephone Company is formed. In October 1880, the new Americus Clubhouse is remodeled as a hotel, the Morton Hotel, and later becomes the Indian Harbor Hotel. On November 27, 1880, it is reported that Henry Webb is already cutting ice at 10 acres. Webb bought at auction Theodore Mead's farm at Potts Hill, which had originally belonged to Theodore's grandfather, 
General Ebenezer Meade. And by the way, that place called Ten Acres is where Greenwich High School's campus is today. How about that? In 1881, on March 21st, the charter revision granted by the General Assembly gives the warden and burgesses of the borough of Greenwich the right to, quote, open and lay out new highways, streets, public walks, alter and repair of the same, and to discontinue streets and highways, unquote. On April 3, 1881, the First Presbyterian Church is founded by 41 dissatisfied members of the Second Congregational Church. Initially, they worship in Ray's Hall and an old harness shop. Partial rebuilding of the old mill on the Byram River in North Greenwich near the state line is accomplished. It is one of the last remaining grist mills and was the site of strategic meetings during the Revolutionary War. On December 3rd, 1881, the Edwards Brothers published the first edition of the Greenwich Graphic, a weekly newspaper. In 1882, beginning on January 21st, smallpox vaccine is made, quote, up to 500 to 600 quills, unquote, in Mr. Foster's factory in Cascob, and from there shipped to many cities. The oyster business is thriving. Each oyster, each oyster man is assigned an area by the state. About 300 oyster men in wide-beamed, single-masted sloops using hand dredges or hand rakes scoop up oysters from the local oyster grounds. The Nelson Bush Farm is put on the market for $40,000. George and Henry Dayton buy six acres for $6,000. The Behaven Land Company buys the rest, plus an additional four-acre tract for $12,000 from Augustus Mead, bringing the entire unimproved package to $46,000. The Ebenezer Mead Tavern on Putnam Avenue at Lafayette Place, which had been the headquarters of the British General Tryon during the Revolutionary War, is raised to make way for the new First Presbyterian Church. Ray's Carriage Shop is built on Greenwich Avenue opposite Ray's Hall. And on July or June 15th, I stand corrected, of 1882, the Little Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church is founded and builds its church on Lake Avenue, where incidentally it is still today. On July 15th, farms are being sold to the influx of New Yorkers looking for smaller estates and summer places. Rock Ridge, originally the Zacchaeus Mead Farm, was assessed in 1846 for $15,000, in 1872 for $12,000, and is eventually bought by Nathaniel Witherell for $14,500. A few years later, after road sewers and water lines are laid out, three-acre plots sell for $15,000 each. And finally, for the year 1882, the Boswell Drug Company moves to a new location on Greenwich Avenue, and the telephone exchange moves with it. And that, my friends, is what was found um, in the book, Greenwich Before 2000 for the years 1880 through 1882. If you would like to get your hands on Greenwich Before 2000, you may do so by going online to greenwichlibrary.org and you can search uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, the catalog there or you could even just stop in to uh, the Greenwich Library at its main branch or any of the others in town and look for a copy there. 
you are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. (laughs) Imagine this appearing as a special to the New York Times. In this case, it was Uh, for the August 23rd, 1904 edition of that paper, the New York Times, of course. This is a rather amusing story. In today's segment on uh, the uh, Greenwich in the Gilded Age, um, you heard me mention the name of a uh, rather uh, prominent member of uh, my family from the uh, Byram and East Portchester, as it used to be uh, called area, by the name of Milo Mead. Um, In fact, Milo Mead was the man who gave the, uh, the land where New Lebanon School Um, is uh, today. And um, this is rather interesting. Some of the uh, citizens of of Byram and Byram Shore um, had a good laugh over this, and uh, perhaps you will as well. The headline on this is Sage of New Lebanon, which is what Milo Mead referred to himself as, fooled by picnickers. Boat seas they took constable along as guest. Milo Mead's vain protests, his plan to prevent Sunday excursion by boat named for him, foiled by defective attachment. And uh, the story goes as um, as follows. And again, this is uh, dated August 22nd, 1904. All of the inhabitants of the western end of the town of Greenwich, including Byram Shore, where the Mallorys, Joseph Milbank, and other New Yorkers of wealth summer, are laughing about how the Independent Citizens Association yesterday fooled Milo Mead, the, quote, sage of New Lebanon, unquote, as he calls himself, and had an enjoyable excursion which he had planned to break up. Mr. Mead is eccentric. That's true, by the way, he was. He lives in East Portchester, but insists on calling it New Lebanon. This spring, Charles Grigg, a contractor, had a freight boat built at City Island, which he named, quote, Milo Mead, unquote. That gentleman load, loaned Grigg $5,000 in acknowledgement of the honor and took a mortgage. Saturday, word was brought to Mr. Mead that the Citizens Association was going on an excursion on the Milo Mead on Sunday and already had her stocked with beer and other drinks. Mr. Mead sent at once for lawyer William Ferris to see how he could stop it. The lawyer told him to attach the boat, put a constable on board, pay him for his trouble, and release the attachment Monday morning. Richard Morell was the constable whose services were procured, and the attachment papers were against Charles Grigg, Lulu Grigg, the Grigg Contracting Company, and Charles Grigg, agent, all four forms being used by Mr. Grigg in business dealings. But there was a flaw in the serving of the legal papers by the constable. They could not be served on Sunday, and the association was not long in finding this out. They allowed the constable to remain in position all Saturday night. When they were ready to start, they notified the officer that he would have his choice of getting off the boat or being put off. They had their counsel present to prove that they were right. 
while Mr. Mead was hustling to the village to get out an injunction or anything else that would fill the bill. The anchor was weighed, and the Citizens' Association, with the constable as a guest, left the dock and had a glorious day of it. <laughs> Mr. Mead declares he will do everything possible to prevent a repetition of Sunday excursions as long as the boat bears his name. Well, the new year has commenced, of course. We all know that. And um, there was an article that I wanted to share with you while we have a little bit more of an afterglow before the rest of the year um, unfolds. And this one was uh, about uh, the New Year's uh, merriment and music and dancing that was celebrated um, on, in 1929, this comes from the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, January 4th, 1929. Again, this is before the stock market crash later on that year. And of course, nobody had any knowledge of that happening. But um, here we are in early 1929. And this was the uh, celebrations that were held at the famed Pickwick Arms Hotel. <music> Well, on crimes and misdemeanors, this is the portion of the podcast in which we dedicate to the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. Um, this is a story that dates from September of 1905. This was featured in the New York Times, um, and it's a very, very serious crime story. Some of our Previous crime stories have been uh, a bit on the lighthearted side. This one most certainly um, is is not. The headline on this is Mrs. W.C. Morell shot by masked intruder. Daughter of banker E.C. Converse attacked in home. And by the way, in case you did not know, E.C. Converse was the, uh, the man who uh, founded uh, Conyers Manor, Conyers Farm, up in the um, backcountry. The headline further goes, Nurse beaten with pistol, supposed burglar, also fires at Mrs. Plasted, Mrs. Morell's companion, servant's acquaintance, arrested. And this uh, was a special to the New York Times. Dated Greenwich, Connecticut, September 12th, 1905. And it goes as follows. Mrs. Antoinette C. Morell, daughter of E.C. Converse, a New York banker and an officer of the United States Steel Corporation, was shot by a masked burglar who broke into her home early this morning. The bullet struck her near the right side of the mouth, knocking out four teeth, breaking her jawbone, and lodging in the back of her neck. If she recovers, she will be disfigured for life. Before shooting Mrs. Morell, the burglar had beaten into insensibility the nursemaid who first discovered his presence in the house and had fired on Mrs. Plasted, who lives with Mrs. Morell as a companion. There were six women servants sleeping in the house and two stablemen sleeping over the barn not 100 feet away. Without delay, Deputy Sheriff Rich was notified by telephone and a call sent to Dr. L.B. Jones, Mrs. Morell's family physician. The whole countryside was aroused in a remarkable short time. The railroad stations for a radius of five miles were being closely guarded with the hope of capturing the burglar. At the time of the attempted burglary, for such the Greenwich authorities are inclined to believe it was, although a large contingent of villagers in Inclined to the theory that the invader meant to kidnap Mrs. Morell's children, the rain was descending in torrents. 
Deputy Sheriff Rich, in posting his men at the various train stations, instructed them to arrest any man who had been out in the storm. Policeman Jack Gramer had hardly taken his post at the Greenwich Station when a bedraggled man appeared and took a stand as if to wait for a train. Kramer, seeing that the man was thoroughly drenched and that his feet were muddy, promptly arrested him. At the police station, the prisoner, who said his name was John Brown and that he lived in New York City, was searched. In one of his pockets, the officers found a letter from Kate Tierney, a cook at the Morrell's home. Brown said that he was employed at Gibson's Livery Stable in 51st Street, New York City, and that the cook was his sweetheart. He explained that he made the trip to Greenwich to see Kate Tierney and had determined, owing to the rain, to postpone his trip. He did not satisfy Deputy Sheriff W.E. Rich by his statement and was locked up. Mrs. Morell, who is about 25 years old, has lived in this place for the last two summers, spending the winters in New York. Her husband, W.C. Morell, it is said, has not been at Greenwich. Last spring, her father rented the old Mead Place on Putnam Avenue for her, and she has since been living there with her two children. The Mead Place is built in the colonial style. It is about two and a half miles from the Greenwich Station, near Cascob, stands well back from the avenue, and is sheltered by ancient elm trees, which at night cast a deep shadow about it. When Mrs. Morell took possession, she brought with her quite a retinue of servants. Mrs. Playstead, her companion, occupied a front room across the hall from Mrs. Morell's sleeping apartment on the second floor. The two children, Converse four years old and George two years, slept in a rear room with Isabella Burns, a nursemaid. Five other maids slept in the house. Last night, Converse was ailing, and Miss Burns, who is as much governess as nurse, was frequently awakened. She did not go to bed until after 12 o'clock. About 2.50 o'clock this morning, the child was sleeping soundly, and she fell asleep. Hardly had she dozed when she was roused by the second, by the sound of stealthy movements in the room. She raised herself on one elbow and caught a glimpse of a masked man who carried a drawn pistol. As she raised up the gleam of an electric flashlight, struck her full in the face. She screamed and sprang from the bed to be met with a crushing blow on the forehead from the butt end of the revolver. Despite the blood which streamed from the wound, she attempted to grapple with the man, raising her right hand in the attempt to shield her face and screaming at the top of her voice. A second blow broke two of her fingers, and then she was battered to the floor. The burglar, after she had fallen, stood over her and struck her repeatedly about the head and upper part of the body. Mrs. Playstead had heard the screams and had started from her room. The burglar, who had left Miss Burns on the floor after beating her into silence and had started to escape, met Mrs. Playstead in the hallway and fired a shot at her. The bullet went wide and he snapped his pistol at her twice. Mrs. Morell heard the shot and ran from her room almost into the arms of the burglar, who raised his pistol and fired point-blank at her head. The bullet cr crashed into one side of her mouth, and she was knocked down by the shock. 
The wound did not cause her to lose consciousness. After she fell, she feigned death, for the burglar seemed in no hurry to leave her. He kicked her once or twice and snapped his revolver at her two or three times. For some reason, the cartridges failed to explode, and as she did not move, he left her and went downstairs and out through a rear door, which evident he evidently had left open as a way of escape. By the time he got to the yard, the stablemen and everybody in the main house were awake, and they distinctly heard a voice from the darkness shout, Hurry up! Beat it out! Quote unquote. There was a panic in the house. Mrs. Morell, unable to speak, was lifted to her bed, and the nursemaid who had tried to fight off the masked intruder was attended by the other servants. The coachman telephoned to Deputy Sheriff Rich, telling him of what had occurred, and then sent another message to the doctor. Dr. Jones was the first to arrive. His first care was for the two women who had been wounded. Then he began to look about him, and while he was investigating the condition of the house, Deputy Sheriff Rich arrived. They found that the burglar had chiseled a pane of glass out of a front window, opening on the first floor veranda, and slipping his arm through the opening, sprung the catch and raised the window. Making his way to the kitchen in the rear of the house, he opened the kitchen door, which he left open. He had sprung the catch to the window of the room occupied by Miss Burns and the children before he was discovered. Going into the yard, the doctor and the deputy sheriff searched the shrubbery to see if they could find any trace of the marauder. marauder. They carried lanterns and traced his footsteps in the wet ground around the kitchen floor to a low hedge in front of the house. The burglar evidently had jumped at this hedge. Just on the other side of the hedge, where it had fallen from his pocket, they found the revolver. The weapon was of a large caliber and of the military type, and had a ring fixed in the butt. The presence of this ring explained the ugly wounds inflicted upon Miss Burns. Two of the cartridges in the cylinder had been exploded. The other three had been snapped. The searchers found in the kitchen the chisel with which the, the window pane had been removed from the front window. It was brand new and still bore the cost mark. There was nothing to show where it had been purchased. It was raining hard when the burglar entered the Morel home and continued to rain for some 10 or 15 minutes, but the downpour had ceased before the deputy sheriff arrived at the house, and his precaution in telling his men to watch out for a man in wet clothes was not without its purpose. As soon as Kramer arrested Brown, he notified Rich. It was Mr. Rich who found the letter in Brown's pocket. The officer put the prisoner through a questioning. Quote, I came up from New York on the 945 train, Brown said to Mr. Rich, to see my sweetheart, Kate Tierney. The train got to Greenwich at 1046 o'clock. It was raining, and I decided I wouldn't call, as I had intended, and I was waiting at the station to catch a train for home when I was arrested. I have known Katie for a long time. We are to be married next month. Quote, How did you happen to be so wet if you had stayed about the station waiting for a train home? Unquote, Mr. Rich asked. Quote, I was standing around, and it was raining hard. Unquote. 
Mr. Brown said that he frequently wrote to the girl and that she often wrote to him. He insisted that he had not been anywhere around the Morrell home. What time did your did you say your train got to Greenwich, Mr. Rich asked? At 10.46 o'clock was the reply. As a matter of fact, there was a wreck on the train on the railroad at Portchester shortly before 10 o'clock, and the train which was due in Greenwich at 10.46 did not arrive until two hours later, or almost 1 o'clock. Mr. Rich did not tell Brown that he knew this. Brown stuck to the 10.46 story throughout the day. At 10 o'clock tonight... Two Pinkerton detectives who were called into the case by Mr. Converse with Deputy Sheriff by Mr. Converse, or with Deputy Sheriff Rich and Prosecuting Attorney Henry B. White, subjected Brown to another questioning. The Deputy Sheriff said that he felt reasonably sure that Brown knew something of the shooting, but he does not believe that Kate Tierney was in any way connected with it. Quote, the letter we found in Brown's pocket Quote, he, unquote, he said, quote, was a plain everyday love letter, just such as many a girl might write the man she was going to marry. I found out, I found out at the Morrell house, too, that Kate Tierney was as much frightened as anyone, uh, anybody else on the premises when the screaming and the shooting began. She jumped through her window to the roof, which her room overlooks, and cut her leg severely. While I am confident that there was another man concerned in the affair, this was borne out by the statement of the servants, that when the burglar fled from the kitchen, someone called out, quote, Hurry up! I cannot say that I have any clue to the identity of the other man, unquote. Early this evening, a stranger who was asleep on the Mayanus River Bridge with his head on the rail of the electric car track, was arrested. He did not give a satisfactory account of himself at the time and was locked up for inter investigation. Dr. Jones said tonight that while he believed Mrs. Morell would recover eventually, she would be badly scarred. The wounds of Miss Burns, the physician said, were almost as serious as those of Mrs. Morell. Kate Tierney, the cook, when she heard of Brown's arrest, burst out crying. Quote, he's a good man, unquote, she said between sobs, quote, and he would never have broken into our house. He's been up here to see me many a time. I'm sure he's innocent. Why, he never carried a pistol in his life, unquote. The girl asked if she might go to see him, but was not allowed to do so. She insisted that he was an honest, he was, he was innocent, and that she would marry him anyway. Up to a late hour tonight, the deputy sheriff and those working on the case with him had not found the electric flashlight or the mask worn by the intruder. Miss Burns, Mrs. Morell, and Mrs. Placedead all described the man as being of medium height and wearing dark clothes and a derby hat. This description fits Brown. Mr. Converse Mrs. Morell's father, hurried from Stanwich, where he is summering, to his daughter's bedside as soon as he heard of the shooting. He would not discuss the case except with Deputy Sheriff Rich. After telegraphing to New York for the two Pinkerton men, Mr. Converse went back to Mrs. Morell's home. The story told by Brown as to his identity was verified in New York, 
at Gibson's Livery Stable at 51st Street between 7th and 8th Avenues. It was said that he had worked there for three years and that he was both faithful and honest. He never had lost a day, his employers said, except through sickness. He left the stable at 6 o'clock Monday night. At 300 West 51st Street, where he boarded, his landlady said he was a reliable man who never got into trouble. He had a sweetheart, his landlady said, who lived in Greenwich. Edmund C. Converse, father of Mrs. Morrell, is president of the Bankers Trust Company, 7 Wall Street, and the Liberty National Bank, 139 Broadway. He was a director of the American Banknote Company and has a townhouse at 1070 Madison Avenue. In 1900, his daughter was married to Walter C. Morrell, the son or a son of Amos Morrell, formerly a member of the firm of Haywood Brothers, hair manufacturers. At the time of the marriage, Morrell was a man of large fortune. Some months ago, he fell and broke his leg. When his leg was knit, he was a sufferer from locomotor ataxia. This summer, he has been with his mother at Cedarhurst. His brother, Harry Morrell, who married Bertha Sherry, a daughter of the caterer, is also in Cedarhurst. Well, my friends, it's time for the Judge's Corner. The Judge's Corner refers to Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard, a lawyer, writer, gifted storyteller. His life spanned the late 19th and early 20th centuries in Greenwich, Connecticut. He used the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale when writing about what he called Cracker Barrel stuff through his column, The Judge's Corner. Now, those columns were organized by a very good friend of ours by the name of Frank Nicholson. And he published those in compendium form as Greenwich History, the Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. You can find that book in the Greenwich Library system by going online to greenwichlibrary.org. On today's show, I am going to share with you column number 125, dated January 14, 1932. Its title is depression and, and Christmas business at the post office. We don't mean to uh, start this off on a low note, but that's the title. Uh, those round stones being found under Greenwich Avenue and why there is a bend in the avenue's upper end. And this was published again on January 14, 1932. And it goes as follows. Christmas business at the post office varied somewhat from last year. The volume may have been the same, but it differed in the size of the parcels, being much larger last year. Last year, activity in the parcel branch extended over six days, but this year was limited to three days. The difference in the size of the parcels and an apparent increase in letters and cards during the holiday season indicates a decrease in liberality owing to the hard times. Dividend checks and monthly bills always play their part in the volume of postal business during the holidays. Confusion arises at times from the mixing of business letters with Christmas cards, but through no fault of the post office. A businessman having an office and a checkbook remote from his home may welcome cards at that address, but bills and commercial correspondence should never go to the home but to the office to receive prompt attention. 
the late Foster A. Higgins and his T-card and spirited black team will be recalled by many of our elderly readers, who may also recall the fastidious story Mr. Higgins used to tell of the wonderful accumulation of unpaid bills reposing under the coachman's seat of that famous T-card. Before the days of the carrier, the delivery of his letters by various hands was somewhat uncertain. Hence, the request to local merchants to mail all his bills to the New York office. Possibly there was some excuse for not complying with this request when local letters went for one cent. However, the failure to comply accounted for the accumulation of unpaid bills under the coachman's cushion. But with the carrier system, there is no excuse for overlooked bills. There is no reason for a sender, except in rare instances, to include a street and number in the address. Without such direction, the bill goes to the debtor's store or office where the checkbook lies. Sent to the house, it rarely receives prompt attention and frequently is lost or response is delayed. Shopkeepers like prompt payment and they are more likely to get it in the room where the checkbook lies than in the room where the pajamas are hung. The workmen engaged in the work of widening of Greenwich Avenue are marveling at the great number of round stones the size of a man's head that are being unearthed. It is the first time that they have appeared in the light of day since the summer of 1854. Some of the men familiar with farming have remarked that they look as though they came out of a cornfield. And they are not far from right. Our early settlers felled the forest trees and planted their crops somewhat haphazardly between the stumps. Later, they burned the stumps and plowed out the field stone, which were used in the construction of fences, dividing as much of the common land as was set out to them into fields of cultivation. Sometimes the supply was more than was required, in which cases the fences, called stone walls, were made of a width of 10 or 12 feet. The purpose was to get rid of the stones and to give the plowman an, unobst an unobstructed field. Until quite recently, if not at the present time, short examples of such wide walls existed on the Th Colonel Thomas A. Mead farm. The same condition on the farms then crossed by the road to Piping Point, which in 1854 was widened from 18 feet and thereafter was called Greenwich Avenue. The widening process took those ancient walls built long ago before the War of the Revolution. Henry M. Benedict, who was instrumental in the widening of the road, found the stone walls very convenient for filling and especially for reducing the grade of quite the steep hill that existed at the north end of the road. Hence the long-buried stones that are now coming into the light to sustain in foundation walls the great commercial buildings that are now contemplated. There is a bend in the upper end of Greenwich Avenue that may have that many have never noticed. And in rolling along in a rapidly moving automobile, one is not likely to observe it. But at number 83, James Haggerty's property, there is a sudden deflection to the west. To make it straight to the avenue and to meet Lafayette Place would cut into the hotel property 100 feet. In other words, the parcel that should have gone into Greenwich Avenue to make it straight from the Haggerty property is in the form of a triangle at the base of Putnam Avenue of 100 feet and the apex of the Haggerty property.
With this exception and a slight deflection to the west near the Roman Catholic Church, the avenue is practically a perfect tangent from the head of Art Street to Putnam Avenue. The road to Sherwood's Bridge, now Lafayette Place, is quite as old as the road to Piping Point, Greenwich Avenue. If the town planning board had then been in existence, we may believe that those two roads would have joined at the main country road, now Putnam Avenue. After a couple of centuries or more to figure out the history of Indian trails and oxcart roads is difficult. And yet now and then in the commonplace book and other early records that throw out hints now and then, a guess may be made as to why certain things exist. And much in the way of tradition has been handed down from generation to generation, will help, which helps to solve the mysteries of the past. Where the Pickwick Arms now stands was the large stage yard, an inn of colonial days. If you go to the northeast corner of the hotel property next to the sidewalk, you will find a flat, uncut, uncut slab of blue stone, standing about six feet high, through which round holes have been cut. Upon this slag hung the gate to the stage yard of those early days. The old inn stood close to the roadside, and within were open fireplaces, over which were handmade mantles of exquisite design and workmanship, and panels of the same material covered the wall plaster. Such characteristics of the old house were familiar to our elderly readers, whose memories go back for sixty years or more. It was in the front room of the old inn beside its glowing fire of hickory logs that Augustus Lyon sat, owner and manager. Augustus Lyon was one of the prominent and wealthy men of Greenwich, who made his money by other means than by farming, and yet he was not without land under cultivation. He owned perhaps a dozen acres, extending south of the inn along Greenwich Avenue to the apex of the triangle referred to above. There was hay enough for his own team and pasturage for three or four cows. Vegetables were raised sufficient for the hotel table. It is said that the first stop out of New York by the Boston-bound stages was very welcome to the passengers. Mr. Lyon knew how to receive and entertain them. The fresh vegetables were cooked to a turn, and the tap room was well stocked with the choicest of liquors. It is no wonder that Gus, as his neighbor call, neighbors called him, grew rich. In all the early enterprises which called for capital, he was one of a little coterie of men who gathered at the inn and organized stock companies that always proved successful. Among them were the Greenwich Academy, the New Burial Ground, now a hundred years old, and the Rocky Neck Land Company approaching its century birthday. We know this from the records of these early organizations. Augustus Lyon was born in 1779 and died in 1861. Thus his life began and ended in the midst of two bitter wars, but this fact never seemed to disturb the serenity of his life. His last two years were spent at the old inn, where winter fires on the ancient hearth gave out their cheerful glow in the severe winters of those, of those years. The writer lived nearby and frequently saw the old gentleman in a chucker, collar and suit of broad cloth, suitably becoming and in the style of his occupation of landlord. 
Youth had no realizing sense of what old age meant. They regarded old people as if never young. It was quote-unquote old Smith, quote-unquote old Lindsley, without the thought it savored of disrespect. Nor did they ever contemplate seriously the fast-moving years of their own lives. Thus, Gus Lyon is forgotten except by those who have lived beyond the allotted age of mankind and by those who have thumbed the tomes of local history. In those early days, the name hotel, quote-unquote, was first coming into use. In colonial days, we had used such terms as ordinary, quote-unquote, a victualling, quote-unquote, a cookshop, quote-unquote, inn and tavern, were by far the most popular, and at the present time, there was the same distinction between first class and commercial house. In 1824, when Mr. Lyon was in active middle age, Lafayette stopped at Weed's Tavern across the road from Mr. Lyon's Inn. It seemed to the committee of reception a more aristocratic and suitable place than the commercial house, where the tap room was often filled with horsemen noisy with their trappings and sometimes profane with their language. And besides, there, were, there was more room at Weeds to accommodate the attendants who came with the gentlemen. And all this refers to the question of why that triangle was lost to the easterly side of the road to Piping Point. Why was it not permitted to meet the road at Sherwood's Bridge? Gus Lyon was a shrewd politician. He pulled the wires of both parties to secure the election of some of the best officials the town ever had. And it was much easier in those days to turn a road away from beloved possessions than it is today. And so, in 1854, when the, quote, young 33 New Yorker, unquote, attempted to widen in accordance with modern-day planning, he found the dooryard of the old inn so much in the way that the triangle was still held, just as Mr. Lyon had persisted in having it many years before. The writer could find no record of the fact that make this story true. It is, however, a tradition told to him by many of those who were act active half a century ago. While it was only a tradition, it is easy to see that the map that the triangle that should have made Greenwich Avenue a straight line was wholly within bounds of once belonged to Augustus Lyon. His influence kept road markers away. Not a foot of his enclosure was invaded. He had held the land for many years, and he wanted still to hold it. He was well within his rights. Later came those who enlarged their premises by moving highway fences out, as the old maps reveal. But Mr. Lyon was not that kind of man. He was simply a standpatter and stubborn, to such a degree that after 70 years his name appears at the second widening of Greenwich Avenue. And that is signed by Frederick A. Hubbard. Again, my friends, you can get... The book, Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson by going to any branch of the Greenwich Library system, or you could go online to GreenwichLibrary.org. Mm. 
You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, my friends, Rick Hansen, local history librarian at the Greenwich Library, has announced the Heritage with Hoopla 5 part series. Why not start the new year by delving into your genealogy and family history? Join us as attendees wander through Hoopla's Discovering Your Roots, an introduction to genealogy using the great courses series. The series is free to the public. No registration is required. Seating is limited to 18 and seating is made on a first come first served basis. The first workshop Ancestors in Ship Passenger Lists is Wednesday, January 4th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Learn how to make sense of passenger arrival records, the single most precious document for reconstructing your ancestors' voyage to North America. Using several key guideposts and sources, including colonial land records and immigrant directories, you can uncover facts about arrivals from colonial days through the 1950s. The second workshop, Ancestors in Naturalization Records, will be held on Wednesday, January 11th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Did your immigrant ancestors become U.S. citizens? Did they procrastinate or not naturalize at all? Dr. Collada reveals how naturalization records can answer these and other biographical questions. You'll focus on adapting your research to three major naturalization periods prior to 1790, 1790 to 1906, and 1906 to today. The next workshop the Genealogical Proof Standard will be held on Wednesday, January 18th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Strengthen your skills as a family history detective in this in-depth look at the Genealogical Proof Standard, the five-step process that certified genealogists use for proving ancestral identities, relationships, life events, and other biographical details. Then wrap up the lecture with a fascinating look at the nature of evidence. The next workshop is Ancestors in the County Courthouse that will be held on Wednesday, January 25th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Discover how to work your way through the courthouse records of the county where your ancestors resided. Using the two most common types of courts, circuit and chancery, you'll examine how to read courthouse materials, including probate packets, vital records, tax rolls, and even colonial-era records such as indentures and apprenticeships. And the final workshop will be held on February 1st, 2023, and that one is Ancestors and State Records. Now again, that will be on Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Good genealogists always take advantage of local sources outside the courthouse as well, including state archives, which hold 
records that resulted in the administration of state laws. Here, you'll learn how to tap into the information found in original sources, such as census and military records, and derivative sources, including maps and newspapers. As with all workshops, please arrive early as the program will start right on time. Each week, attendees will watch a 30-minute genealogy video in Hoopla, followed by a discussion and practice of the techniques learned. Participants and attendees are asked, please, to bring your Greenwich Library card and PIN to access Hoopla. Program contract, uh, contact is Carla Sherman at 203-625-6560 or Rick Hansen at 203-622-7948. Again, this is the Heritage with Hoopla series at the Greenwich Library. Attendees will wander through Hoopla's Discovering Your Roots, an introduction to genealogy using the Great Source series. This is free and open to the public. There is no res- registration required. You are encouraged to come to all of the of the workshops. And again, uh, it is always first come, first served. Engaging Ideas with historian Dr. Ashley Farmer is an online event at the Greenwich Library open to the public on Wednesday, January 11, 2023, from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Farmer discusses her research of black women's intellectual history, including research strategies and primary source databases. Greenwich Library subscribes to ProQuest's historical black newspaper collection, offering essential primary source content and editorial perspectives of the most distinguished African-American newspapers in the United States. Dr. Ashley D. Farmer is a historian of black women's history, intellectual history, and radical politics. She is currently an associate professor in the departments of history and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Her book, Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era, is the first comprehensive study of black women's intellectual production and activism in the black power era. She is also the co-editor of New Perspectives on the Black Intellectual Tradition, an anthology that examines central themes within the Black intellectual tradition. Her next book, Queen Mother Audley Moore, Mother of Black Nationalism, which is forthcoming from the University of North Carolina Press, will be the first biography of one of the most influential yet understudied activists and thinkers of the 20th century. Farmer earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from Spelman College, a Master of Arts in History, and a PhD in African American Studies from Harvard University. Dr. Farmer lives in Austin, Texas. The event URL will be sent via registration email. There are 39 slots available. Now, for more information, my friends, please visit GreenwichLibrary.org. The program contact is Rick Hansen. He is the local uh, Greenwich, uh, Greenwich Library local history historian, uh, or librarian, rather, sorry. <laughs> and um, his contact uh, phone number is 203-622-7948. You can also reach him by email at r. Hansen, that's R-H-A-N-S-E-N, at GreenwichLibrary.org. Erwin Edwards and later his brother L.B. or Lucian Edwards were columnists in the early 20th century whose articles about Greenwich, Connecticut's history were published under the headline, Greenwich Life as it is and was. Today's article I'm going to share with you was published a century ago, 
Friday, January 5th, 1923. Its title is The Legislature of Years Ago and the Present Time, Important Acts Affecting Greenwich. And again, this is from a century ago in 1923. The Connecticut Legislature of 1923 organized on Wednesday. Until the Constitution was amended in 1884, the legislature convened every year, and prior to 1876, the sessions began on the first Wednesday in May, just about the time the Connecticut River had begun to be caught each year, and because the members of such liking for this Epicurean fish delicacy, for such it is considered by many good rivers, they were called shad eaters, and the newspapers printed many humorous little jokes about the shad-eating proclivities of the members of the legislature, particularly the backcountry members. And it was really because of complaint of the backcountry members that the date of the opening of the session was changed from the first Wednesday in May to the first Wednesday in January. The sessions then lasted far into the summer and interfered with the farm work of the farmer members, and they made such complaint of injury to their business of farming by reason of their attention to legislative duties that the change was made for their benefit, and as the Greenwich members then were mostly farmers, it suited them. Notwithstanding the change to January, the sessions were frequently prolonged to late summer, and to prevent this and expedite the business, an act was passed limiting the length of the session to three months, so that the farmers would not have further cause of complaint, and since then the law-making has been more expeditiously accomplished. The present session will be of special importance to Greenwich residents because of one bill, if not others, that will be introduced for passage affecting Greenwich interest. It is the most important measure relating to Greenwich that has been before the legislature since the one that was passed changing the form of the town government. That bill was passed a dozen years or more ago. There had been a lot of agitation among some Greenwich taxpayers and voters, most of whom were new residents, about the need of reform in the management of town affairs. The town debt had reached the sum of $250,000, which was considered a large amount for the town to owe. The management of the town business was entirely with the selectmen, town treasurer, and tax collector. The voters in town meeting made the appropriation, and the selectmen had the right to increase them if they deemed it necessary. They could borrow money at will, and it was because of their unlimited borrowing of money and large interest account that the bill was sent to the legislature for passage, curtailing the selectmen's powers by providing for the election of a board of estimate and taxation, a charity commissioner, and highway commissioner. The bill was passed, and its originator predicted great reforms and saving of expense in the carrying on of the town's business. It was decided to issue bonds at 4%, pay off the town's debt, and by doing so, a considerable amount of interest would be saved and no further debt was to be created, the expense of the town to be kept within the amount raised by taxation. It certainly seemed like a fine business proposition, and if complied with, would show Greenwich a model town in, economic, in economical methods in the management of the town's business. A glance at some of the recount annual town reports, 
or the recent annual town reports indicate that the change in town management has not proved the great success predicted. Hmm. The town debt has increased many thousands of dollars, and the borrowing of money has been continued every year since the law was passed. The bonded debt of the town amounting to $1,100,000, about the limit of the town's right to issue bonds, until the the recent release in the Graham uh, list last year, the law allowing the town to be bonded at 5% based on the grand list so that it will not be necessary to apply to the legislature for the passage of an act permitting Greenwich to increase its bond issue to provide the money necessary to pay for the new schoolhouses for which the Board of Estimate and Taxation have been petitioned to make the appropriation. As the grand list will permit the issuing of bonds and the limit of the town's bonding right will not be exceeded. But the important bill regarding Greenwich, and it is a very important bill as it may make great difference in the value of some high-class residential property, is one that will also affect every town between Bridgeport and New York. It provides for an automobile highway parallel to the Boston Post Road for the special use of trucks. There are so many heavily laden trucks passing over the post road, and because of the other great use of it by passenger automobiles, particularly in the section to be affected by the proposed bill, that there must be enlarged highway to relieve the congestion that is almost daily increasing. Greenwich residents realize this as well as those residing in other towns and will make some concession. Objection, however, is made to the present layout as it passes through a section of beautiful Rock Ridge, one of the finest and exclusive residential parks of the several that have done so much to attract home seekers to locate in Greenwich. Of course, nothing need be said to to impress on Greenwich residents the injury of a fine residential section an automobile truck highway would be, and doubtless vigorous opposition will be made to such a proposition should it come up in a bill for passage in the legislature. It was the late Nathaniel Witherell who developed Rock Ridge. The land was the farm of Zacchaeus Mead for many years. Mr. Witherell saw the possibilities in the rocks, valleys, and brooks from which it abounded, bought the farm, and spent thousands of dollars in opening up the land and increasing the natural beauties of it, by adopting the idea of well-known landscape architects, and when he had finished the work, the building plots were at once in demand for residential sites. Many costly homes had been built there, forming noted suburban homes and the making of the old farmland, such an attractive residential section, is perhaps the most important of all of Mr. Witherell's activities that have done so much to benefit Greenwich. And that, my friends, is from Greenwich Life as it is and was. Um, and um, and you can uh, find this um, online, actually, in the old newspapers of Greenwich. This one was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, Friday January 5th, 1923. Well, this story comes from the year 1903, specifically September 17th, and this was featured in the New York Times. Um, it's about the steamer S.E. Spring, which uh, was sunk 
uh, just off of the um, the coast of uh, Meads Point um, on the shore of Greenwich, and the story goes as follows. Crew and passengers, including five women, swim ashore on the wrecks near Greenwich. And this was a special to the New York Times, and uh, it happened on September 16th, and it goes as follows. The side-wheeler steamer S.E. Spring, owned by New Rochelle people, that would be in Westchester County, New York, and carrying produce between Stamford and New York, also doing an excursion business between times from New Rochelle to Rye Beach, was wrecked at 3 o'clock this afternoon on the rocks 200 feet from E.C. Benedict's mansion in Indian Harbor. The steamer left New York this morning with produce and 10 passengers, five of whom were women. The crew consisted of seven besides the captain. Off Greenwich, she lost her rudder during the gale, and two anchors were put overboard, but one was lost and the other dragged. The boat drifted for a half mile, narrowly escaping collision with the yacht Quickstep and several other boats. The captain, seeing that the boat was powerless, lightened her by throwing the produce overboard so she would go as far ashore as possible. She struck on rocks at the end of Meads Point, and the captain and steward put preservers on the five women and swam ashore with them. Assistance was lent the crew from the Benedict Place after attention had been called to the predicament, predicament by the blowing of the whistle. A hole was made in the bow of the boat, and one side was underwater when she was abandoned. The men lost all of their belongings. From the position from which she lies, the boat will be broken in two, it is believed, before morning. Waldo Shelton's race about Montauk was swept on the rocks off uh, the Indian Harbor Yacht Club, a hull stove in her, and her spars broken off. Fred Crocker's sloop went to the bottom a short distance away. Ian Norton's launch Tycoon and Richard Outwater's catboat Siren went ashore on the Belhaven shore, as did Everett Mead's Eos and the dinghy. They were only slightly damaged. Aside of the automobile sheds at the club property blew into the sound, but the automobiles were uninjured. All over town, trees, some a century old, were uprooted. An Adams Express wagon containing a small safe was blown over, and much havoc was wrought among the wires. Clyde Fitch is without telephone and electric light at his isolated home at North Cosgob tonight as a consequence. Trolley traffic has been delayed by mammoth trees blowing across the tracks. And that, my friends, was a special to the New York Times, that is dated September 17th, 1903, here in Greenwich, Connecticut. Thank you, my friends, for tuning in to today's Tuesday, 10th of January, year 2023 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly podcast is hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut stands today as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. And like always, it's a special place that we call home. Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, 
Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management and listeners like you everywhere. Now, do you want to contact me? Well, you're welcome to anytime, and you can do so by email at greenwichatownforallseasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday, the 17th of January, 2023. My friends, I'm really grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating Greenwich, Connecticut's history. I look forward to being with you next week. Take good care now. Bye-bye. Thank you.